Okay. okay. The only voice you can do after having a adult-sized IPA. <laughs> like the one last night. That's how the bartender sold us. He said you could have a adult-sized IPA or a child-sized IPA, and <clears throat> no one ever chooses the child-sized. Customer Education Lab, where we take customer education myths and misconceptions and give them a rightful spanking across the bum. I'm Adam Avramescu. And I'm Dave Darrington. And today we are happy to uh, welcome you to National Chucky the Notorious Killer Doll Day. That's a real day. Very spooky. I can't believe that's a, that's a national day of, it's also what? Greasy Food Day? It's also Greasy Food Day, but we don't wanna, we don't wanna share too many of them because we got more in the can. Mm, okay. Um, the reason why it is a spooky, spooky day is because we're getting close to Halloween over here and uh, I can date this podcast because we are recording this the day after we gave our session at DevLearn. Yay. What's DevLearn, Dave? DevLearn is, it's actually a pretty amazing conference and it's really all about learning professionals. I think they target learning and development, but as customer education people, there's a lot to learn here. So I've been here all week, learned a lot, really looking forward to that. We're gonna to talk today about our presentation. Yeah, and we'll have, a, we'll have another episode coming up where we do more of a summary of the DevLearn conference itself. But a really cool conference because it's, it's not necessarily about the uh, executives who hold the L&D budget, it's about the practitioners who are actually creating amazing things. So we're going to go through our presentation that we gave, and uh, you may not have all the same visual elements that we had in front of the classroom, but what we decided to do was a live episode of C-Lab. So we'll share the hypotheses that we are tearing down, but the session that we chose to do is on measuring ROI by collecting, connecting, and visualizing data. All right, let's go ahead and do this. Uh, Adam, why don't we kick us off? All right, so we introduced ourselves to the crowd by mentioning that we are part of the world of customer education, which is a little bit different from the typical L&D world that a lot of folks came from. And in fact, um, there were some customer education people in the room with us too, which was really exciting to see. Um, but part of how we frame that up, we talked a little bit about our podcast, um, but we also talked about the fact that for those of us in customer education, we are in a world where we are continuously renewing our customers, especially in SaaS customer education, where we have software, that software is on a license and the license has got to renew. So education is not a one-time thing. It's an always thing. Continuous learning is the phrase that continues to come up. <laughs> I see what I did there. Uh, Continuing to develop new content, continuing to learn, it's all very important. Yeah, and we've got to always keep it updated over time. But, you know, we don't have the advantage that a lot of folks have when they're doing internal learning, especially at a smaller company where you know all those learners, you have control over them. Mm -hmm. uh, ultimately, the organization can uh, audit them or fire them if they uh, don't take your training. Not many people actually do that, but some do in compliance-based environments. Uh, we don't have that same level of touch, so we have to be able to do things at scale. Exactly. So we're going to kick this one off, and we're going to begin to talk, uh, like we did at the conference, about data. So let's kick this off. Uh, Adam, what is hypothesis number one? Hypothesis number one is that data will speak for itself. Hmm. Or, if you're a grammar nerd, 
data will speak for themselves. 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 Yeah. It's good that we're using good grammar on this show. We should always use good grammar. So um, we're wondering whether this is provable or not, and I would say probably not. I would tend to agree. Uh, we think this is false. Data doesn't actually speak for itself or themselves. And to do that, we wanted to share a few quick stories about how data might seem objective, but ultimately it's used in the service of storytelling. So data can tell stories. And for a quick example, we pulled a reference from a Forbes article. That Forbes article showed a table that was, and, and we, we can link this article mm -hmm. as well, but it showed a table that had the education levels listed out. So from doctoral degree all the way down to less than a high school diploma and was correlating that with unemployment rates and median weekly earnings. And when you saw it expressed as a table, you could see that the, the numbers were going down or going up as the education level went down or went up. And you could see that there was some sort of correlation, but it wasn't necessarily that visual or that interesting. Uh, we then shared a different version of that exact same report, the exact same data, but visualized to actually show it as a bar graph. And then, Dave, what could you see when you showed it as a bar graph instead of just looking at the table? When you're seeing this as a bar graph, you're, you're seeing how different things are between each one of the education levels. So when I looked at the next chart, I go, oh my gosh, if I got like a, a professional degree, the, the monthly salary was significantly higher than just maybe just a bachelor's degree or no degree at all. So it's really telling a story and impactfully, visually, that, hey, this data has something that I want to learn about. Yeah, there's something about the way that visualizing data can actually tell a more emotionally resonant story. So here, when you start to look at the fact that it's not just a, a little bit of a stair step, step up in salary from degree to degree, it actually becomes very... Uh, multiplicative, it's like an order of magnitude higher, that tells, I think, a much more meaningful story. So the point that we tied that back to is when you're in the room with your executives arguing for budget or arguing for the influence of your training team or customer education program, you can't just bring in the numbers and expect them to resonate, especially if those numbers are just on training activity data. So that brings us to hypothesis number two. Okay, and that hypothesis is your training activity data will buy you that coveted seat at the table. Do we think that's true? I don't think that's true. I don't think we can just rely on our training activity data. That is not. That is absolutely not true. And just like we saw in the, the previous example, um, if you're going to be in a room with your executives and defending, you know, trying to explain your ROI, the data alone is not going to buy you anything. So what will? What we really need to do is, of course, like we discussed, we need to present a good visual representation of the data, right? We have to make that clear. And uh, often the reason that we as education folks show them training activity data is because that's all we've got, right? That's why we're gonna focus on collecting, connecting, and visualizing that data. But before we do, let's do another story, Adam. Sure. So. This is a parable, and I actually may have shared this on this podcast before, but it's one that I've heard from uh, Ruben Tosman, who's been actually very active in the e-learning guild, who sponsors uh, Devler and Earth. They're, they're the ones who actually put it on. The parable that he shares is a story where you are the L&D leader at your company, and you're going in to argue for budget. And to do that, the activity data that you show is, hey, we had this many people in the organization come in and take the required security training or the required safety training. Um, and we had this many people attend and this many people pass and I need the budget next year to do more of these. So um, can you give me some money please? 
Now, meanwhile, the floor manager or the floor supervisor is walking in and she is also tasked with managing um, the safety of the workers who are working on the floor. The same people that you're trying to train on safety. But if she comes in and says, well, hey, you know, our error rate is still going up. Our defect rate is still increasing and it increased by 5% this year. So we need the budget. We need that for more on the job training, which might not come through the L&D team, or we might need that just to enhance our safety mechanisms. Who do you think is actually more likely to get that budget? Is it you coming in with your training activity data, or is it her coming in with the actual data about what's happening on the floor? I would say it's probably going to be the line supervisor. I would say so too. And that's the problem that training professionals are in a lot of the time where we're trying to tell a story about our influence on the business, but we're telling that story in the wrong way because we're talking about things that happen in our classroom, not the outcomes that we're affecting in the real world. Okay, let's take a, a sidestep and, and let's go back into the world of digital marketing. So Adam, you and I have spent a decent amount of time in digital marketing outside of what we're doing with training, maybe inside it. Um, and we wanna put this into perspective. Now let's perceive a funnel, You know, get a visualization of a funnel in your mind. And there's four levels. Now this is in marketing. So we are doing that conversion funnel, right? At the top of the funnel, we have a band that says awareness. Then we have a band that says interest, and that's the next step down. Then it's consideration. If a customer is, or a potential customer is interested in buying your product, where they're going to have a discussion with a salesperson, and then finally conversion. So we, we think a lot about funnels in, in the business world, as we do sometimes as well in education. So in sales and marketing, you're trying to get to that conversion. That's getting that person to buy something with you. And you can't get into that funnel, though, unless we go through every step of it. We have to begin with the awareness. We need to make a great website, right? We need to, may need to do advertising. Um, ultimately, if somebody's interested, then what are they going to do? They're going to fill out a form, or they might pick up the phone, or they might talk to your chatbot. Uh, any of those things could be, do, be happening. Um, you may also have that sales development rep, cold calling, emailing, et cetera. Once you get people into that funnel, then you've got data. Now, what's important about this? A lot of us will look at that last conversion. You're going to measure the conversion. Well, that's, that's what the business cares about that's ultimately. How much did about. we sell? I don't care how many people visited the website if those visits don't actually lead to some sort of conversion. Exactly right. And what's more, what's important here is that number is, is very important, right? What is our conversion rate? But... What we've learned in digital marketing is that every step in the way have proxy metrics, right? We start off with how many people are interested in going to our site. That's Google Analytics. How many people have interest in their, how many people fill out that form? So every step of the way, we're able to do some measurement. Ultimately, and what we're going to do next is turn this into something for us as educators. We want to sit down and understand what you're going to measure, how you're going to measure that, and how you tell a story about your data. Which is important because the reason that funnels exist in digital marketing, I think anyway, is because marketing used to be perceived as a frivolous function in the business. It was, oh, you're going to go to the trade show and hand out pens and then something's going to happen and then we're eventually going to make some sales. Well, that's not really true for digital marketing. Digital marketing actually gave marketing a seat at the table along with the sales team. And the reason that it did was because they found a way to measure those proxy metrics that would ultimately lead to the thing that the business really cared about, i.e. sales. 
And the way that they did that was by measuring those leading indicators before the purchase. So before you ever get to conversion, awareness, interest, consideration, those metrics, those are all leading indicators ultimately of the sale. The reason, the reason that those marketing funnels exist is to help uh, define those leading indicators that are ultimately gonna lead to conversion. It gives marketers something to measure and to report on that is actually going to help them define where drop-off exists. Now, we as learning professionals, we actually have a tool that works this way, although a lot of us don't think of it like this. It's Kirkpatrick's four levels. And often, if you go and uh, search Google image search Kirkpatrick's four levels right now, and chances are the way you will see it displayed is uh, it might be some building blocks sitting on top of each other, um, but it also very likely might be a pyramid. Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that viewing it as a pyramid leads us into kind of a, a pyramid scheme of bad data. I've made that joke so many times uh, and it never so lands, good. it it's, never lands. I like it. Uh, I got a real groan in the room. But uh, <laughs> we start by measuring the data that's most available to us, the reaction data. Most of us do surveys or smile sheets or some way of knowing when people came to a course or viewed an article or whatever our training is, uh, what did they think of it? That's the easy part. That's the easy part. And then most of us have some way to measure learning. Was there a test? Was there a, a pre and post eval? Something like that. But then it gets harder once you go further up the pyramid, right? You're, you're kind of climbing up that mountain and your energy is uh, starting to flag. You can't really measure behavior or results that well. A lot of the times we just don't have the resources to measure those things. But what if we start to think of it a little bit less like a pyramid and invert that pyramid and turn it into a funnel? Well, that means we're going to start by measuring reaction, but only in service of, so what? Did they learn anything? Mm -hmm. We'll measure learning, but so what? Did they change their behavior? And we can measure behavior, so what, if it generated results? So even if we're still not able to measure all of those things all the time, at least thinking about it as a funnel instead of a pyramid starts to orient us around what those end results are. Now, this talk is about ROI, and we have ways to measure ROI in our field as well. There's the Jack Phillips ROI method, and there's a whole ROI institute built on top of measuring the effect of training programs. But even the ROI institute says you won't always get to that level with all of your programs. Why? Well, one reason is because it's a big investment to measure ROI of all your programs. You're not always gonna be able to do it because there are a lot of calculations that go into it and often it's resource intensive to measure ROI. The other reason is because if you look at the uh, steps in the process to measure ROI, one of them is after you collect your pre and post program data, you have to isolate the effects of the program, which means you have to do something that's really tricky in our world. It was tricky for the marketers too. You have to find some way to reduce all the noise and isolate the effects of your program. And frankly, training is messy. We're not always gonna be able to do that. We're not always gonna be able to isolate the things that we did. So that brings us back to uh, our friend Ruben Tosman who gave us the, the parable at the very beginning. Uh, check out his book, it's called Learning On Demand, really cool. Um, but he says, we have to stop thinking about training as if it's going to be deployed locally. And what that means to me is that we have to rely on analytics more to judge the success and failures of our training, but we have to be able to tie those systems together as well. So the way I interpret that is, before we can really report on the effectiveness of our programs, we have to find ways to collect the right data in service of the right goals, and we have to find ways to connect and tie it together so we can report on it at scale. But how do we do that, Dave? 
Okay, that brings us to hypothesis three. So we're talking about data, and we're covering again those three aspects of collecting, connecting, and visualizing. Each gets progressively more interesting, difficult maybe. So let's start with collecting, right? And the hypothesis we, we brought to the audience here was your learning management system has all the data that you need to collect. Now, what do we think about that, Adam? I don't like it so much. I don't you know, know that most LMSs have all the data you need to collect. No. Um, so an LMS does, in fact, capture a lot of information. Much of the time, the tools we use, LMSs in particular, um, are tasked with capturing that data, and they do a pretty good job. We have email, we have names, we have other profile data, and going beyond that, now we know who's taking the training. What are the things that we immediately want to know? How long did somebody take on a module? Uh, what was their score when they completed a quiz or exam? Um, did they complete something? Um, and did they have any feedback? Was the material that they consumed good? Did they like it? Did they hate it? Did they find something wrong with it? All that stuff is super critical, but is it enough? We pulled the room and what we found out really, it, it validated this point. For most people in the room, you know, the, their LMS is, is not an island. No, no LMS is an island. Uh, they were connecting their data, just like we do, to other systems of record, like their CRM, like Salesforce, or to their HRIS, for those who are working on uh, HR-based training. But the LMS isn't the only source of data that's flowing into those systems. A lot of them are also trying to get their survey data out of a system like Qualtrics, uh, or maybe their video data out of a system like Wistia. So there are several different systems usually that have to report into some source of record where you're gonna ultimately do your reporting and data visualization. So let's go a little further. Again, the task here of collecting, Adam, that, that we argue is you need to start somewhere. You need to look at the landscape of all of your data. You just mentioned all these different resources, right? Yeah, I where do you start? It sounds really complicated. It is very complicated. So where you start, where I always start, I, get, I tend to get stressed out if I don't have something listed on a piece of paper where I can see anything or where I can see everything. So in this case, we introduced the concept of the data dictionary. Um, again, for our audience, uh, I, not a lot of folks were aware of this, and you may not have heard this term as well. Data dictionary really is just a centralized repository of information. Now, this is all the data. You know, it, it's about your data. What fields in your or what objects in your LMS are important to you? Um, what meaning do these things have? And, and what relationships does the data, data have to one another, right? Um, there's a lot here. So basically what we're saying is we want to list everything out. We want to look at all the sources of data we have, put them in a spreadsheet, put them on a piece of paper, determine how you're going to use that data and ascribe some meaning to it. Additionally, you might also want to think about the format of that data. It might come in in a particular way. You know, that might be XAPI or something like that. Yeah, and this is the reason why a lot of folks in the learning world are using XAPI and reporting into a learning record store. We'll, we'll talk about that again in a moment, but I think for a lot of people who have only been exposed to those concepts, but not the more general versions of, of what they represent, the idea of taking some source of data using some standard uh, to pass it in through an endpoint into a database, uh, you don't necessarily know why you're doing what you're doing. So it, it does sound like a data dictionary is, is valuable, but Dave, it sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work at first, right? But the important thing behind this effort, the building your data dictionary, building your list of, of software, 
uh, is that you've listed all the important things that you can use and you can share that with other people. Now this becomes particularly important if you're working with others to help you get to visualization, which we're going to talk about later. Okay, so I want to end this on one last point, which is, again, what we are trying to do as educators is get out of our little comfort zone of thinking about all of our learning data, the standard stuff, the easy stuff, and start speaking the language of the business. So let's go a little further on this. We, uh, we talked about levels of data analysis, and uh, we had a chart or a table, and we talked about the audience that you're working with, what kind of data that you have, and what the goal is right, for using that data. We began with an, an L&D team, and for those of us custom, customer education folks, that's our team. That means, hey, in my LMS, I want to know how many people are enrolled, who they are, what is the completion rate. This is the stuff I talked about previously, things like drop-offs and smile sheets. That is going to help us refine and optimize our program. That data is super important to us. Our leadership might not care, but for us, we can say, hey, this module is not doing so well. This one is great. Um, but then we start going down the line and we start thinking about other people that we know and we work with every day and how do we affect or impact other people in our business. That might be managers. That might be customer success managers in our case. Uh, I like to use that example because let's, let's say we're working with a customer success manager. Um, when I was at Gainsight, I had, oh, I, I had built tables and, and things in the product itself that were able to show what who had taken training, what training had they done. And CSMs really wanted that and they loved that because then they, when they got on a call, they knew, hey, uh, Adam had taken this training and he'd taken all the training, in fact, and I have a confidence level that this person is going to understand the material. That, that's really, really powerful. So we can get activity by, um, by customer cohorts, right? different kinds of segments in, that you talk about in customer success. You can get evaluation scores. NPS is a really, really big thing. Uh, and, and so on. There are a lot of metrics that your CSM, so your customer success team, is going to care about. And then let's finally get down to execs, right? We're going to, trying to get to that seat at the table. And the big problem is we need to give our executives something that means something to them. What does that mean? Well, what impact did we have on attach rates? Did we affect our CSAT scores? Did we bring down the overall time to first value when a customer onboards and they complete that onboarding? These are all really, really important things. In particular, we have things like um, support too. So if you're working with a support team and they're getting a lot of calls, we can aid them in call deflection. So uh, again, we're talking here about who's using the, the technology, uh, how much are they using it, and are they satisfied with it? Um, so at the end, not all data too is created equal. So in this data dictionary we're talking about again, you're going to be starting to look at all these different cohorts, just like I talked about before, and define who we're going to surface reports and to whom. Now, as you're starting to collect data, you're going to find that to get to those deeper levels of analysis, you are going to have to connect some systems, i.e. it's really difficult to do this in a spreadsheet where if you're going to say, hey, I want to take uh, all of my training data and find my trained versus untrained customers and then find the impact on CSAT or attach rate. But chances are there is some data that you've already collected even before you've connected your systems and you can still use that. Most of that is still useful for you to optimize your own program. So for example, you probably have some sort of value metric that you use like upvotes or course completions or survey mm -hmm. scores. 
You probably also have some sort of metric that indicates discoverability, like enrollments or page views or search terms. Well, those pieces of data in isolation don't really mean a whole lot, but paired, they help you make decisions about your own program. So for example, if something is both highly discoverable and highly value, how, if I, if words are hard. <laughs> words, words are hard. If something is highly valuable and highly discoverable, that's something you might want to invest in higher production values, new formats, uh, or something to really keep promoting with your customers. That's flagship content. If something's neither valuable nor discoverable, well, that's time to slaughter your darlings. It's hard to keep all of your programs going at once. Every time you have a piece of content in the world, you need to maintain it. So these are good candidates to just get rid of. But the most interesting one is when you start finding disparity between the two. If something is highly valuable but not really discoverable, you can start to make decisions about how to add search terms or tags, how to surface it in your navigation, how to put it above the fold in your LMS or other places where it might be displayed. Or if you're using in-product education, those might be things to add in-product links to as well. And finally, if it's discoverable but not valuable, well, now you have a heat map essentially of things that you can fix. So for example, at Optimizely, we had a, a spreadsheet that we used. It was not a super sophisticated tool, but it was a way that we put all of our most viewed but least upvoted articles, uh, i.e. the ones that had the lowest upvote to downvote ratio, and we heat mapped those. So the burning ones that had a really high negative rating, that was our heat map that we went to go and update next quarter or next week. We also relied on other data that our uh, other peer teams used. So one team that we supported for, uh, quite often was support. So we always looked at their dashboards for what the most common ticket types were so that we could start to prioritize which pieces of content we could create to address those top ticket types. And finally, still pretty much in isolation, we could look at the articles that were freshest or least fresh, what had been updated most recently or least recently, and then who could we rely on to help update it? So just by looking at dashboards of um, how old articles were or the last update date, well, you don't have to connect any systems to look at that. You also don't have to connect any systems to look at who are the people who are authoring articles most frequently so that we could reward them for our efforts and continue to draw them in. But that only gets you so far, Dave. How do you, how do you start to really connect those systems? Well, let's, let's continue with this. Let's, let's think about uh, what the next step is in this. Uh, our fourth hypothesis is you need a data scientist to connect your systems and your data. What do we think about that? I think a lot of us don't have data scientists at our disposal. A lot of us don't. And it was interesting in the audience, there were a couple people, one person in particular had um, had an analyst or a data scientist on their team. Loved which, it. Which was amazing and they, they were just beaming. Um, so to do any sort of measurement, we're going to start looking past operational metrics, right? And we're going to start getting into the the business data. We're starting to look more broadly how we're affecting other programs. You can't just collect your data. You have got to connect it. So going back to the last hypothesis, we were talking about our LMS. There's a lot of stuff your LMS can't collect, right? If you're lucky and you have other things in there, great, you can get more. But chances are you're going to be using other systems. So you're going to have a strong need to get all that other data into a place that you can access and report it. Um, so let's continue here and let's talk about how this landscape of software, I mean, we're in the, we're in SAS, right? Yeah. I mean, we have data coming in from so many different systems. 
And it's everyone a, uses best of breed tools. It's amazing. And and you have, gosh, I, I could sit down and I, I showed the audience a chart and you could have things like Gmail and HubSpot and Salesforce and Zendesk and Rike and MailChimp. All of these different systems are out there. And are they talking to each other? By By default, they don't, right? That's where we need to start thinking about how to bring all these, how to connect all these things together. Sure, you could hire a data scientist and they would help you make sense of this, but we in our talk presented a process, and we're gonna do this today, presented a process that you can follow on your own. So to begin, there's two really important things that you need to do. One of them is you've gotta find a home for your data, a singular home, right? You're gonna get all of the data that you're looking at in other systems and bring that into one place. Otherwise, how are we gonna do, I mean, in a simple use case, we would do a pivot table or something like that in Excel. Who doesn't love a good pivot table? I, I love me a good pivot table. Um, I like some V lookups. Ooh, how about a cross tab? Ooh, We're Excel magic. We love Excel magic. So number two, you're going to use tools to connect those data sources, and then you're going to bring them in. You're going to use the term uh, ingest that into your repository. So once we have that home, we're going to connect all the data sources, and then we're going to start working with that data. Well, let's talk about this a little bit more. Okay. So the next slide we presented was, again, on that topic of getting your data into a centralized location. We brought up on the screen several different things. There's this mess of data. You need to get all this stuff into place. And terminology that you might hear about are things like a, a data warehouse or a data lake or just a database. Uh, a lot of folks in the room, especially people who come to, to DevLearn, they're very interested in thinking about tools and technologies like XAPI and learning mm -hmm. record stores. And we were trying to draw the connection here that XAPI is an API. Mm -hmm. um, a learning record store is a data lake, essentially, right? Where it's a repository and a database that XAPI statements go into so that they can be made reportable. So it's not different technology than what we use in other places. We wanted to draw that parallel. Right, and, and Megan Torrance in one of the discussions uh, that I attended talked all about like the intro to XAPI and how this all works. And she even said, Adam, that XAPI is API, right? It's just a standardized format. Yeah, we gotta have her on the show. Yeah, we definitely want to. So yeah, you could be using an LRS, you could be using something else, but really you could just start manually. The first step I always like to take is I've laid out all my data and now I'm actually starting to work with it. Um, in, in just a basic spreadsheet, in just a basic series of tables that I could start to do stuff with. So from there, we talked about common types of connections, right? Connection methods. We listed out six of them, and I'll go over them really briefly. But this helps you to understand like the landscape of interconnectivity, right? Okay, so the landscape of, of connectivity here is, you, again, we talked about a spreadsheet. That's easy. Uh, we all know that. We love that. We can download CSVs. Uh, create new tabs, do some pivots, and do some magic. But that's not going to scale with you. If I have to do that report every, oh, heck, um, when I was at Gainsight, I did this, and I updated it once a month. And it took me several hours to put all this data together to do a pivot before I started to automate the process. So, yeah, it's non-trivial. It takes some time. There's still ROI on that. I started doing my, started doing my reporting just in Excel and went from there. So from that point, I started talking about other connection types. Uh, one of my favorites is iPass. You know that, about iPass? It, well, it reminds me of episode 15 of this very show where you talked all about iPass. I talked all about that. So you can go back to episode 15. It'd be a great call for call out for you. 
Uh, integration platform as a service is what that is. Uh, there's many options out there. What we presented to the audience was, you know, if, I, if this, then that, right? If you know Zapier, uh, those are somewhat, those are on the easier end of the spectrum of the products that you can buy. They're, they're more um, consumer grade, but there's other options out there. Basically what an iPaaS solution does is it connects point to point, brings data in, can do that based on different activities or events. So if somebody started a course, it could fire off a message and say, hey, Adam took this course today. So that's a really useful technology uh, to bring data and to connect data together. So let's go over a few others. Uh, we, we talked about native integrations. Come, what comes to mind first is most of the LMS providers I have had give us a Salesforce native integration. And if they don't, then we should all be a little bit worried. We should be. Um, that native integration is really helpful because if I have all of my same learning data in Salesforce and I'm a heavy Salesforce user, guess what? I can write reports on that platform. I can make dashboards on that platform. And I can start connecting data about my customers back to my learning data. Which is why if you're a customer LMS, you probably do have a Salesforce integration because that is the system of record for most customer-facing organizations. And if not Salesforce, a different CRM. Some people use Sugar or other, other CRMs that are out there. That said, not all native integrations are created equal. So one point that we wanted to make here is that it's really important that as you're integrating or implementing a new LMS, you should really look at what those integrations look like mm -hmm. and work with your business informatics or business intelligence or business systems team. They go by different names, but they all do some version of kind this. Of the, 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 people, the people who work in your data warehouse and uh, write SQL all day, right? Um, they're the ones who should be looking at the quality of these integrations to figure out, can they do what you actually want them to do? Just because someone says that they have an integration doesn't mean that it's going to do what you want. And the thing to especially be worried about is if uh, someone starts saying, oh, well, we can just write an API for that. There is no just write an API. That's a lot of hard work, but we still have a couple of uh, spots on the journey before we get to full APIs. Yeah, let's, let's bring it full circle here. So, of course, we have XAPI, which... We didn't go into detail in our audience, but for those of you on, on the show, um, this is a standard. This is a, a, an, an education industry standard that is basically, it is an API, uh, but it works with learning record stores pretty commonly. Yeah, if any of you work with SCORM currently, SCORM is a standard. It's not an API, it's a, it's a standard. Um, XAPI is generally a lot more flexible in terms of what it can report. Mm-hmm. And I uh, sat in a session, we learned about XAPI statements, and there's a lot of goodness in there. Indeed. Uh, and the last two things uh, are ETL tools. Now, ETL stands for Extract, Transform, Load. The times you'd want to use that is really with big data, because that's not like an iPaaS solution where you're putting bits of information back and forth. This is I'm pushing huge amounts of information. So we in our industry is probably not going to hit this, but it is out there, and sometimes these ETL tools double as an iPaaS tool. And, and then finally, Adam, you, you uh, stole my thunder a little bit on the API world. But I'm sorry. You can, you can get rid of it in <coughs> editing if you want. We can pretend I didn't say it. No, we're going to leave it in because <laughs> that's what we have fun. Um, APIs are hard. Uh, I'm just going to admit it. APIs, uh, if you're not using an iPaaS solution, iPaaS solutions are there to connect to those APIs automatically. So somebody's done the work for you. But let's say, you know, I'm not going to use that. My security team doesn't trust me. I am simply going to write the code myself or hire somebody to do so or have my development team do it. Um, there might be times when you indeed want to do that. I've done that before, but I'm going to tell you that it's really, really super hard 
and it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, so we, we visualized that and we showed the spectrum of going from the easiest solutions to pop in, like Excel's easy, like it's accessible, you can use it, but you have less control ultimately over how flexible you can then connect data to each other and how, how robust that reporting is gonna be all the way over to APIs, which are the hardest for you to do personally, but are gonna ultimately give you the most customization and flexibility. But the point that we really wanted to make here was for you as a customer education leader, you need to make data connection a priority. A lot of people go and argue for data collection, which is great, mm -hmm. but then they have a bunch of data sitting around and they have no idea what to do with it. So, you know, solution one to that is you have to have a good idea of what your funnel is going to look like, what your results um, are supposed to be. And we'll get into visualization in a moment. But the other piece is you really have to work on getting the resources from your BI team or business systems team or whoever they're called in your organization to work with you to do one of these types of connections. That's the team that's going to be able to work with those ETLs. Absolutely. And another story to add into this is... This takes a lot of time. Why, Adam, you said make this a priority is pretty much every company I've come into, whether I'm doing the work myself or I'm working with other teams, the bigger the company that you have, the more siloed and slow things are going to go because there's more process. That's not necessarily a bad thing, it's reality. So when you come to an environment and you're saying, I'm going to get all this data and I'm gonna start connecting it together. Uh, so you wanna start early. You wanna make sure that you give yourself enough time uh, to anticipate uh, those in your organization who are going to be asking for reports that you might need. Maybe nobody's doing that, but it's going to come along sooner than later. Yeah, usually those those teams have to plan their work in advance because they're getting requests from all over the business mm -hmm. to connect various data to each other. Uh, I'll, I'll tell a story too. This is a podcast exclusive story. I didn't tell this at the yeah. conference. Yeah, all right. Um, two days ago, I was I was in the elevator bank at our office and I was uh, I was waiting for the elevator with um, one of our data scientists who was was in a conversation with another person. So I was overhearing her conversation and she was she was using a metaphor of a big black box that most people don't know how to get into and uh, how to work with. And I, I just chanced it and I said, are you talking about our data warehouse? Ooh. And she was like, how did you know? How did you know? This stuff is hard to work with. So you don't necessarily want to be doing it yourself. If you, if you can use Excel or an iPass tool yourself, great. Otherwise, ask for help. Cool. So this brings us back to where we started, which is that data interpretation is, is not objective. It's storytelling. So that's our final hypothesis. Uh, we, would, we would say that hypothesis is true. Mm -hmm. uh, data interpretation is not objective. So we'd like to share some ways that we visualize data. Now, this is not conducive to podcasting because we're talking about an inherently visual medium, but Dave and I will try to walk you through some of the storytelling that we use as we visualize this data. Yeah, we're gonna take a go of it. Maybe we'll make a YouTube version of this as well. I'm also doing a great dance right now that you also can't see on the podcast. So, you know, yeah, we try, we try. Okay. so on. And next, what we did is presented a series of reports, and I'll try to visualize these mentally as well as I can. Uh, the, the slide I was presenting showed three different reports, and this came from my tenure at Gainsight, where we were fortunate enough, Gainsight's a really interesting and cool product that allows you to, well, you have all of your CRM data, you have all of your whatever, you can ingest whatever kind of data that you want, and you also have your product data. So, really cool. The first chart that I showed was a time to first value chart. Did we affect, could we affect, as educators, 
how people got onboarded, right? How long did it take a company from when a deal was closed one to when they launched, right? And they went through that onboarding, learned the product and used the product and got up to speed. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, but that's an interesting chart. The next thought we had, and this was more experimental, we wanted to see how training impacted sales. So you're thinking about that, like how does training, how could training impact sales? Well, what we had found, and I found this at a couple of different places, if you don't have a locked down behind some kind of a portal, uh, at, at one of the companies that I've worked at, there's a single sign-on integration, and you can only get access when you have, have access to the product. There's good and bad both ways, but if you, Adam, were to have a wide open portal for training, uh, the net benefit that I've seen is a lot of companies, when they're doing their due diligence to learn about your product, will spend time saying, hey, I wonder if they have training and what does it look like and how's that going to help my team? That's one of the benefits of having a, an open training ecosystem. Yeah, the, and, and I think that's kind of important and it's really cool because people could say, oh yeah, you've got training and I was able to go look at it and use it, right? So we did a, a diagram and we correlated uh, closed one opportunities and if those accounts, and again, this is a light correlation, this isn't causation or anything really technical, but we were able to see some lift. We were able to see that a number of accounts went and looked at training before that close date. And that's the key. They had training before the close date that affected that sale. Was it a hard uh, correlation? No. But that's really interesting to see that. And that was a good argument for me to say, no, I would prefer that we keep our training open for this reason. And that's, finally, that's data storytelling. That, that helps you influence and make a decision based on the data you have. I love that. Yeah, people have a harder time uh, uh, arguing with you about data. And, and let me tell you one more story. Uh, it, now I'm looking on my screen at a, it's basically a table. And the table represents uh, all of my learners and the curriculum that they had been enrolled in, right? When did they, what did they complete? What was the quiz score? When was the last time they touched the training material? So it's all this information, one row per course per person. So if you took three courses with me, Adam, you would see a record for all of them. So I very early on decided this would be a really good thing to have because my customer success managers were asking me all the time, hey, Dave, did so-and-so take training? And I could go in my LMS and look at that, but oh my goodness, it's so much better if I can bring that all together and put that into an automatic report so that as training happens, this data is all there and anybody can look at it. Let me tell you a little story about this data. So again, we're looking at this table where you can look to see who's done training. I had an interesting case where one of my CSMs came up to me and said, Dave, we've got an es escalation and it, the VP of this company says, hey, we didn't train some person and that person is failing. They're not doing a good job. They don't understand what they're trying to get done. We're, we're having mistakes. So I go, hmm, all right. And I asked them to open up this screen, this report, type in the name. And they said to me, ah, oh, well, that name's not there. Is there a problem? Is there a mistake? I go, absolutely not. This data is validated. We have processes. I've worked with everybody to make this work. It's accurate. It means that person never took training. So, aha. Yeah, aha. The plot thickens. When, and, and that was really, that was a CYA moment where so I, I could have been in really hot water, right? Because this was a contractual obligation to train somebody. And I was able to go back to that leader and say, 
I'm so sorry, but this person has never taken training. If they had, they would have been in my system. So that is really, I think that's an impactful story because here I was in, in interacting with leadership, even my leadership and an external leadership, and I was able to show visually, no, they haven't taken the training. Um, yeah. Really, really, really impactful. When Earlier, when you talked about the different levels in your data dictionary, that's a really good example of something that you would want to be able to share with your CSMs and with other peer manager teams. Absolutely. Yeah. Who took training and when? Did they take it or not? Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to go back to one of the slides. And again, I'm looking now at a slide that is about time to first value. So I, I have basically a form with two boxes. One of the boxes says, what is the average time to value for accounts where nobody has consumed any training? None at all. They've onboarded, they've gone through, and somehow they got around it. And on the right of the same screen, I have another box that says the average time to value in days uh, for those accounts that have consumed training. Now, what you'll see in this case is the box without says 135 days, okay? It's about four months. The box that represents those that have taken training was 36 days, a little over a month. Adam, what would that say to a leader? What would, if I brought that, that diagram, and in fact, I did, if I brought that chart to my leadership, what do you think they would say? Gosh, why are we wasting so much time with customers in onboarding when we could just be training them and getting them through onboarding quicker? Mm -hmm. they, they're going to get value quicker and they're probably not going to hate us and, and leave later. Right. So, <laughs> that, I mean, that's really important. If I can prove and I could actually take this data and go back to marketing and sales and say, look, let's argue for sales in your contract. Let's say maybe make, sale, make training for free or just included. These kind of things really make a difference. Yeah, for sure. When, when you start to be able to tie those metrics again to the things that the business really cares about and you can show and tell that story of how it relates to churn or renewal or expansion, now you're cooking with gas. Now you're cooking with gas. Okay, let's do one more. Uh, on, on my screen, I had showed another two boxes and these boxes were like, um, what, what do you call it? A speedometer yeah, style? The, yeah, the dashboard style speedometer. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Right, we're, we're looking at uh, net proponent. Let's say that again. We're looking at net promoter score, NPS. And in customer success and, and in SaaS in general, we look at NPS a lot. Uh, I've always measured NPS off of my learners for my coursework. But in aggregate, when you're looking at all of the metrics, that overall NPS, you still can go back and say, okay, if I have my data in Salesforce and I know about my accounts and I, and I can see my survey data from Qualtrics or you know, SurveyMonkey or whatever it is, and I'm seeing... Let's look at what's the difference between accounts that have not consumed training and what their overall NPS is and those that have, that have consumed training, what their NPS is. Now, the, the chart that I'm showing here, the NPS for those that didn't have any training at all was a three. Pretty low, right? And for those who did, it was up in, in about nine. So that, that is, again, really important because, again, it's not hard correlation. But there is a correlation there saying that for the accounts that have consumed training, they're happier. Yeah, and I think, I think that three and that nine, for those of you who are NPS aficionados, that's probably actually a CSAT score, not an NPS score. So yeah, probably about a 30 and a 90. In yeah, that 30, case. yeah, something like that. Negative, negative 20 and uh, 
positive 63, whatever, <laughs> whatever you actually see in your business, obviously you're gonna have that metric. Now someone asked us uh, afterwards, and I think this is a fair distinction to make, well, does this mean that you're using NPS to measure your actual trainings? Because that's been shown to be an invalid way of measuring uh, training reactions. It's It's been validated to measure whether someone is loyal to your business or not. And just to be clear, what we're not saying here is these are the NPS scores for people's reactions to training. This is when people did or didn't take training, what is their NPS for your business? Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a good distinction to make here. Uh, the next one, we'll uh, move over to one that uh, we, we saw from Pat Durrani, who uh, he led the, he led SEDMA, the Customer Education Management Association. So kind of going left to right on this one, again, we have some speedometers that we're looking at with our red, yellow, and green zones. And the first speedometer shows the percentage of churned accounts that were trained. And that's sitting at about 5%. So only 5% of churned accounts ever got training. Well, what about, uh, you know, a little bit better accounts that are still with us, but churned dollars. So they downgraded or they're, they're just spending less for some reason. Well, now 15% of them were trained. Mm, still not great. We probably uh, don't like that correlation there. But now let's, let's flip it. The third speedometer looks at the percent of customers that consume training who then renewed at or above their ACV, their annual contract value. Well, that's at 91%. That's a really impressive correlation. So when customers took training, 91% of the time they renewed at their contract value or they even expanded. That's powerful. That's what your business cares about. Um, but the, the kicker, this is the one I love, the fourth speedometer is, okay, but then what percentage of renewable accounts were trained? Only 17%. 17%? Only 17%. Really low. It is, it is really low. And, you know, what I'll say, what I'll say here is it's not that much higher than the percentage of accounts with churn dollars that were trained. But what we are showing here, because of the sequencing of these dashboards, and again, this is this is data-driven storytelling, that when you when you look at those untrained figures, and then you look at the impact of training, what you're doing is you're you're helping anticipate the question that your executive is going to ask, which is, well, gosh, I see the training has some sort of impact here. How many of our accounts were actually trained? Oh, not many. Okay, let's get more people training. Um, the next one, this is one I've talked about before, actually, and it's in my book as well. But when we released Optiverse at Optimizely, we showed customer tickets that were coming in over time. And for basically the year before we released Optiverse is the reason why we started working on it, in fact, our customer tickets were rising and rising and rising beyond our ability to actually support them by hiring more agents. And in fact, we probably didn't want to hire that many more agents because that would have been really expensive and inefficient for the business. Uh, most of you who have a support team in your business probably know that efficiency is key. Now, we basically plugged in the Optiverse release date to this trend and showed that we released Optiverse at the peak of our inbound customer tickets. And within the month that we released it, that trend started to reverse. And in fact, it reversed so much that within eight months, tickets were back to a historical low eight months later. They were at the same level in December 2014 that they were in July 2013. And for a fast-growing software business, that's an incredible impact. But of course, an executive would have the question, well, how do we know that that um, correlates to 
our accounts also growing. We don't want to see that tickets are falling because we also have fewer people engaging with our product. So we took that a step further once we were able to connect our data by measuring our enterprise customer contact rate, i.e. number of tickets submitted per 100 enterprise customers, to our enterprise account growth. So on one hand, you can see the number of enterprise accounts growing over time, and then you can see the contact rate still falling over time. So we can tell a story that we are still continuing to drive efficiency among that enterprise customer base. And we continue to monitor this over time by looking at our customer cohorts who did or didn't take training. So you could see customers who did or didn't enroll in our academy, customers who did or didn't get certified, who did or didn't use our knowledge base. And then we looked at that against product adoption. So we used a key adoption metric, which was running experiments in our platform. And you could see that again, there's a clear correlation between when customers did take the academy, did use certification, did uh, use our knowledge base, they were much more likely to run experiments than if they didn't use those resources. So we can see that these factors contribute to a successful customer. Again, we are not saying that this is causation, but the correlation is strong and the correlation is still compelling to executives. And again, going back to how our data is messy, sometimes correlation is the best we're going to be able to do. Well, that's it. And that's the same reason that marketing teams use a funnel. There, there are predictive marketing tools out there that do some sort of regression analysis for you. There are data scientists who work on uh, marketing, uh, you know, do, doing, doing uh, regression analysis on marketing data. You can do these things but you're not always going to be able to do it with the resources that you have. And we shouldn't necessarily go as far as to say we need every piece of data we ever report on to be causal because that's not necessarily the point. Now, that said, you can do some interesting causal things and one of the most available to us is A-B testing. Mm -hmm. So at Optimizely, we did a ton of A-B testing. At Slack, we, we also do a lot of A-B testing. And um, one other thing that we do at Slack is we look at the propensity for user sophistication. So not just whether people are using our product, but what features are they using in our product? And how, how well, how, well, how yeah. advanced are they in terms of that, that usage? Um, and how does that reflect other activities that they may have performed? Um, but again, you don't need a data scientist to do a simple A-B test. Um, you might need a sample group to be able to say, hey, I know that what I'm doing is effective and I didn't just test this on three people because that's probably not a meaningful sample size. But once you have a big enough sample size, if you're looking in your product, for instance, uh, one thing that we did was we looked at uh, whether we would want to surface guiders in our, in our product. So some of you use digital adoption platforms like Pendo or UserIQ or WalkMe or WhatFix. There are more out there. Um, some of you do performance management or performance support tools within uh, your product. So we wanted to see what happened when we surfaced those versus when we didn't. And we had a goal that we were tracking too. Now, without guiders, this was our, our, uh, our baseline population. There was a 13% chance that they would accomplish their goal. That's not very high. And for anyone out there who's listening to us in software who has leaders who say, well, we don't need customer education because our product should be intuitive enough, that's exactly the type of figure that you want to be able to show to them to mm -hmm. say, well, I don't think the product is so intuitive that people are doing what they need to do on their own. Now, that was the control group. For the uh, variation group, we actually showed them some guiders that might help them uh, use the product better. And for them, 51% of them That's accomplished the intended goal. That was crazy. And it showed the value of us surfacing customer education in product at a moment of need. 
And again, this isn't gonna work for everything, but when you are able to show some sort of causal connection, it just makes what you do that much more powerful. And you can visualize that again with bar graphs. So the last activity that we did was we asked people to think about what their dream dashboard would be. And I used the, the, I told the story here that, you know, at Optimizely, for instance, before we ever had these dashboards in place, I, I drew them on the whiteboard and I showed them to our business intelligence team to say, you know, we don't have all of our data connected yet, but this is how we're going to want to look at it. Mm -hmm. When I moved to Checker, we did the same thing. Uh, when I came to Slack, we luckily had some more sophisticated measurement in, uh, in place, but there are still going to be dashboards that we're going to want to show. And I'm probably going to draw them on a whiteboard before I ever end up implementing them in a system. So our call to action to you, dear listeners, is to whiteboard your own dream dashboard. What is it that you want to measure and how would you want to tell that story in a dashboard? How are you going to tie the work that you do to the business impact that you want to have? And that's going to help you start taking the data you collect on day to day, your reaction data, your learning data, all of your good Kirkpatrick level one and two, and frame it in a story that's going to be compelling to your executives so you can actually show the business impact of your program and ultimately prove ROI. Awesome. So Dave. Awesome. What else can we do? We've done it all. We've done it all. We've done it all. Now, it, we can't do any more. We all need to sit down and build out our dashboards and think about our reports. Uh, it's a lot of work, yes, but getting to that ROI by being able to visualize stories is just so impactful. But we can't visualize until we connect our data. And we can't and we connect can. our data until we have that all collected. So we got to collect, connect, and visualize. Amen. So if uh, this helped you out, you can help us out by subscribing in your podcatcher of choice. If you're not listening to this in a podcatcher, maybe you're listening to this on our site, customer.education. Um, so whichever one of those you didn't do, go do the other one. If you're listening to the podcatcher, go to our site. If you're on the site, subscribe. Um, and please leave us a, a good review too while you're at it. All right. And finally, as we like to, to always close out our, our podcast, uh, I am at Dave Darrington at the Twitter. I am at Avramescu, also on the Twitter. So reach out anytime. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, and find your people. Thanks for listening.